Hello, and welcome back to the Emergency Traffic Podcast, where we review and discuss events leading to the tragic line of duty deaths of firefighters and paramedics, providing a platform to raise awareness of the lessons identified in these ultimate sacrifices while performing our duty to the communities we serve. My name is Paul, and I'm the host of the new podcast. Thank you for joining us today. I have my co-hosts, Doug and Dirk, joining me. You can listen to us on Spotify and Anchor FM and Stitcher and Apple Podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter at podcasttraffic at twitter.com or visit our Facebook page at Emergency Traffic Podcast. You can email us at emergencytrafficpodcast at gmail.com. How are you guys doing, Doug and Dirk? Doing real good. Good. What's happening these days? Getting out of the cool weather, back into some warmer weather. Yeah, it's getting warm. It's, yeah, just same old, same old. Two kids, yeah. life busy. Yeah. How's work? Well, that's good. It's, uh, yeah. Steady as always. Yeah. Good. Been to any hockey games lately? I have not, but maybe coming up soon. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, sold a bunch and then COVID, I got a refund for some tickets. So I haven't been, but just watch them on TV and yell at the TV. Right. Yell at the TV. How about you, Dirk? Yeah, everything's good. Uh, I'm, I'm home alone with my two cats. That's better than two kids. Right on. <laughs> and my teenager is still at school, so uh, I'll be home in about a couple hours here. We were at the pet store yesterday, but we made it out without taking a kitten home, so that was good. No, we had to get good. some dog food, and the kittens were so cute. Um, hey, wasn't there a big thing in soccer yesterday or something? Leeds, Leeds versus, Leeds versus, uh, I can't remember which one. My son was talking about it. You're a soccer guy. I'm a, I'm a soccer guy, but I'm very local. Oh. Same reason I don't watch uh, the French Ice Hockey League. <laughs> you only uh, watch I'm, only watching, I'm only watching the German Soccer League. So the German Soccer League. Oh, yeah. okay. On yeah. a positive note, my, my least favorite team got knocked out of the uh, – Europa League. So maybe that, that's something he mentioned. So Okay. But it makes me happy. You know, when my team is successful, we always strive on the misfortune of other teams. So Right, right. And I'm waiting for Formula One to start. No Russian GP this year. I just saw that. I just read that. No Russian GP. Good. So, yeah, first race is the 25th February. Hey, Doug, that's where the cars actually turn both ways. Oh, don't you worry. NASCAR turns both ways now, too. Oh, right. Oh, so they, they, they NASCAR, made a change. In NASCAR, the drivers drive the car instead of the computers. Oh, nasty. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to get on with the podcast then, on that note. Yeah. So uh, this week, we're going to explore the tragic events of March 17th, 2005. This is a Canadian one this time where two firefighters died while fighting a fire in a hardware store or actually in a building adjacent to a hardware store in the northern Canadian city of Yellowknife, Northwest Territories. As I've stated before in the podcast, uh, detailed and published information on most Canadian line of duty deaths is difficult to find or access. We do not have the American-style National Institute of Occupational Health and Safety, or NIOSH, uh, which investigates and provides reports and recommendations on firefighter line of duty deaths. Most Canadian line of duty death reports are conducted by provincial 
occupational health and safety agencies and are not available to the public. I've pieced this podcast together from various media reports and stories that I've found just from some online research. I remember this event fairly well. In fact, uh, Doug and I, did you and I go to one of the funerals in Calgary? No, this this happened before I got in the fire scene. Okay, I think I went to the funeral in Calgary for the one firefighter, Kevin Olson. Um, anyway, first... I think just, Doug just uh, graduated high school. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's true. I graduated 2004, so 2005 was right after, yeah. Right, yeah. And I graduated in 1980. So there. Yeah, I wasn't even... My parents weren't even married yet. <laughs> okay. Well, that's what makes the podcast good. It's a variety of viewpoints that we can that we can discuss. And that'll be coming up soon in our bonus episode, the uh, Tailboard Talks, where we're going to debate various subjects of interest to firefighters. So look Can't for wait that. for that one. <laughs> yeah, that'll be good. We'll get some European stuff in there too, right, Doug? Or Dirk? Okay, so back to Yellowknife. Um, a little bit about the community. The city of Yellowknife is the capital of the Northwest Territory of Canada, and it's its only city. It's located on the northern shore of Great Slave Lake, about 400 kilometers south of the Arctic Circle. The original community settlement was founded in 1934, when, like many Western and Northern frontier town, towns, gold was found in the area. Until 1953, Yellowknife was managed by the Canadian federal government, and then it became its own municipality, and in 1967, it became the capital of the Northwest Territories. Until 2012, Yellowknife did not have a year-round road connection to the rest of Canada, and it depended on ice road bridges and ferries to get across the Mackenzie River. The population of Yellowknife, a year after the fire, in 2006, according to Statistics Canada, was 18,736. The Yellowknife, City of Yellowknife operates the Yellowknife Fire Division, which was established in 1943. The Fire Division provides the City of Yellowknife an area with fire and emergency response service. In 2013, which is the oldest year I found published data from the division on the website, responded to about 3,000 calls for service a majority of which were pre-hospital medical care responses. Currently, the division is a career service with about 36 uniformed personnel, including chiefs and deputy chiefs. Operating out of the Taylor Road Fire Station, which was built in 1989. At the time of the incident, the division operated the following apparatus according to FireWiki. They had a 2004 Spartan Smeal 75-foot aerial quint, and a 1993 International General Body Rescue, general bodies in, located in Edmonton there. They really don't build many fire apparatus anymore. And Spartan Smeal, of course, is still around, been absorbed into the uh, REV group as, um, as the emergency vehicle uh, side. They had a 1989 International West Tank Tanker and a 1985 Superior International Pumper, sort of the old cab over Cargo Star Pumper um, it didn't look like they had any other apparatus, according to FireWiki, at that time, and they bought some new apparatus soon after. And I'm also not sure if they were full-time, all full-time at the time, or a combination department. I couldn't find a lot of info from around then on this. Um, 
They also have ambulances. They provide the ambulance service in the. Do they do they do transport too, or? I think so. I think I pictures online of, of ambulances for them. Yeah, later on in the pod here, they talk about the new fire chief coming in after the event, and he was previously in Swift Current, where they had you know 700 calls a year, and he's moving to this department, going to 3,000. But again, most of it is medical. Like, well, similar to your department, um, a lot of departments are doing a lot of medical, but the transport is the difference. Uh, the actual incident at about seven, and we don't have a lot of information on here, so forgive us here, but it's, it's all we have. Uh, about 7.20 in the morning on March 17, 2005, Yellowknife Fire Division was called to the Home Building Center Lumberyard on the old airport road where police had noticed a fire on the premises. The weather at the time was minus 16 Celsius, plus 3 Fahrenheit, with an east wind of 19 kilometers per hour, or 12 miles per hour. Firefighters, the firefighters who gave the ultimate sacrifice to their lives during this event were Lieutenant Cyril Fife, who had joined the Yellowknife Fire Division as a volunteer in 1987, and then a full-time as a career firefighter in 1989. He was promoted to lieutenant in 2002, and he had 18 years of service to the community when he died. Firefighter Kevin Olson had recently joined the division only 11 days before the incident that led to his tragic line of duty death. Firefighter Olson was a recent graduate of the Fire Etc. Emergency Services Technician Program at Lakeland College in Vermilion, Alberta. The fire itself was contained to a small building adjacent to the main hardware building center building. It was described as a shed, really. The shed was used to saw lumber uh, that was ordered by customers into specified dimensions. And you know, they had lots of orders, I'm sure that they were, you know, uh, cutting up and stuff like that. And so they had this saw shed just outside the building so that they could do all the cutting with a little bit of shelter from the Northern Canadian winters. And uh, yet it, it wouldn't be inside the store. The shed, according to reports, may have had lightweight wood truss roof. Not sure what type of roofing material was in place on top of the trusses, and we don't know the size of the shed. During the firefighting operations, firefighters were inside the shed attacking the fire. At the same time, there were firefighters on the roof of the shed. Where Some reports indicate that there was fire in the truss space that they were attacking. So it, it's almost like there was a ceiling inside the, underneath the trusses, maybe to keep the dust down from the sawdust and stuff. I don't know, but it looked like, you know, they couldn't get at it. During the fire attack, the roof of the shed collapsed with the firefighters on the roof falling into the interior below. Lieutenant Fife and firefighter Olson were still attacking the fire below the now collapsed roof. Firefighter, the, both firefighters were seriously injured at, during the collapse, and they were extricated from the sauce shed and transported to a local hospital. Firefighter Olson died that day. Lieutenant Fife, who was in a coma, died about a week later. The owner of the business stated that there were a couple of electrical heaters in the ceiling area of the sauce shed, and he suspected one of them may have caused the fire. The, uh, I can only imagine like the saw sheds usually they're, you know, especially if it's sort of an open air shed, it might be full of sawdust and stuff like that. Um, a lot of places like that have to have dust collection and evacuation systems.
but I don't know if um, if that uh, if that building had that or not. I have no pictures of it or anything like that. So who's that, Doug? Oh, someone came to the door. So Tiller's going nuts. So that's Tiller, your dog. Yeah. As in Tiller, as in the fire department doesn't have any. As in, yeah, Canada needs more. Yeah, Canada the, needs the only more. Tiller truck deck we'll ever have. <laughs> only in my city is the one that I live with. There you go, Quebec City. And there used to be lots of them. If you look at some of those history uh, pictures and stuff down east, there was quite a few uh, oh. tillers. But uh, yeah, I don't know of any in, in the rest of Canada. So back to the fire. The owners thought there was a couple of heaters in the ceiling or in the roof space, and they may have caused the fire. The incident was investigated by the Northwest Territories Workers' Compensation Board, who also enforces the Safety Act in the territory. This investigation was not made public, but upon conclusion, the investigation issued 12 orders to the City of Yellowknife by Workmen's Compensation Board. So obviously the investigation revealed a lot of potential deficiencies according to the Workmen's Compensation Board, and they actually ordered issues, order, issued orders to the city to comply. Orders are similar to recommendations for those of you that don't know what an order is, uh, but they have legislative requirements and they must be acted upon to the satisfaction of the board or else you can have legal ramifications. In addition, individual charges were laid against the fire chief and the deputy fire chief uh, of operations who was in command at the scene of the fire as a result of the investigation. Uh, charges, this was uh, th through shockwaves throughout the fire service in, in Canada, uh, very rare that WCB would actually issue charges against the uh, chief officers of a fire department, although it has happened and there's legislation in Canada for corporations, for example, I believe the uh, Westray mine in Nova Scotia, there was charges issued against some of the executive staff for some mine accidents that had happened there. So there was precedent. Um, and so under that, they did issue the charges. The charges included failing to take reasonable precautions to ensure the health and safety of crews and failing to proper ins properly instruct each worker in the safe performance for his, of his or her duties. Some of the dozen orders that were issued by the WCB that we've read from media reports are as follows. The fire department managers and supervisors must be recertified to meet national safety standards. Uh, so there was a problem, a concern obviously with their training and certification uh, that they needed to uh, actually get people recertified to meet those, uh, those requirements or job descriptions, I assume. They wanted them to create a full-time safety officer position within the department trade to national standards. I, I'm, now there is not really a national standard in Canada for a fire department safety officer. Many departments will use the uh, NFPA 1521 course uh, for that. Although then there's other safety courses, of course, for occupational health and safety. So anyway, that was one of the recommendations develop and implement a comprehensive department health and safety program, uh, conduct external audit of fire department operational procedures and guidelines to identify deficiencies and su suggest corrective actions, evaluate current training practices for gaps that may be present, develop a procedure for all personnel responding to a call for firefighting duty 
and an emergency recall system to be implemented shall include transmitting this information to the fire department uh, dispatch center. So that leads me to believe, was there a question about not being inside the building defensive that didn't get to everybody or, you know, I'm not too sure we can only go, we don't have play-by-play -play reports of the fire. In fact, in the agreements that were later on agreed to, uh, WCB, part of the agreement was that the city would turn over all its records from the call. So there was obviously some some issues in, in what was going on and they were trying to get to the bottom of it. Review scene emergency scene management procedures and operating guidelines and convey the results to local law enforcement officials and other government departments. So whether there are some coordination issues between other agencies. The department must do regular site uh, and building inspections to familiarize yourself with hazards that they may encounter while performing their duties. So uh, to me, that says pre-planning. So uh, obviously WCB thought there wasn't enough pre-planning. Um, interesting, that's also coming up in the Grenfell inquiry in the UK. That's still ongoing where the 74 people died. Sorry, Doug. I think that that's a common thing in most fire departments that, I mean, it's, I don't think you're ever going to pre-plan every building in your area. Right. Even if, yeah. if you're a big city department and a company goes out or a fire prevention officer, that's their only job is to do that. You're never going to keep up with every building in your area. And even if you do, their buildings are always changing. Like this was a outside cut shed or whatever you want to call it. And who maybe they did do a pre-plan. This wasn't even there when they did it. And then they come for the fire and all of a sudden there's a, another part of the building, right? Yeah. And past departments I've been involved if, I mean, yeah, businesses will often erect other structures on what they consider their property and, and not get building permits and stuff like that. The, where I was before they had large industrial areas that had, you know, quite large properties within those industrial areas. And we found several occurrences of companies doing modifications, doing, in fact, it was a surprise when they actually contacted me one time and said, Hey, we're going to put a new fire suppression system in this control room. And we wanted to get your, your approval and stuff. And I kind of went, um, sorry, what? Yeah, well, that's a great idea. And I contacted the adjacent municipality and they said the same thing. Oh, I've never, never been approached about that. And it was a new product that they wanted to use and stuff like that. So you're absolutely right, Doug, in that, you know, how do we keep up with the changes that are ongoing. It makes me think of the recent injuries in Los Angeles, where it was an illegal uh, um, marijuana or TBD oil extrication. They were using benzene or something like that, which is gonna happen. And there were several firefighters injured in the explosions. How do you keep up with it, right? The ghost ship fire, look at that, San Francisco. Well, and, and commercial occupancies are always changing too, right? Like you can go to a pre-plan and a year later, the, the business and what they're doing inside the building has completely changed. I've which gone to where, where they're, they're, supposed, they're supposed to get an occupancy permit for that, of course, to change of use, but, well, but how does that all work? Out of the fire department and gets down to the prevention officers and all that. I've been to calls where you get dispatched to a building, a, a company name, and the address is correct, but the name of the building's different just because it's changed. It, it right. takes time to figure that out. And 
Yeah. And but just because they have a permit doesn't mean that we, we actually went there, right? So just because they have a permit doesn't mean that we know about it, right? There's still a difference between uh, fire fire prevention and operations. So even if if yeah, as Doc said, it's almost impossible to go everywhere, right? That that's what makes uh like the the east coast more dangerous when it comes to structure fires because they've been retrofit older older building construction right lots of void spaces you can't keep up with that stuff yeah well, i mean i think baltimore i read something just the other day that they're talking about enacting a policy for the fire department that they're not allowed to go into vacant buildings so you they, know but they they have an SUP about that. I'm pretty sure. But if a vacant building is on fire that has no power, no gas, and it's burning, somebody was inside. So the the question is how involved was it? And that that's the survival space question. But that that has nothing to do with the yellow knife thing. Yeah, that was a shed on fire, and right. they they should have never gone on the roof. Like that was training at a call, basically. That that's why two people die, and and that's a big thing, you know, uh, is that whole all the research. And I had this debate with our, my cousin the other day. He'll probably listen to the podcast, but uh, you know, uh, somewhere where they there was a problem on the roof, and my answer was, why were they on the roof? Now you and I know that ULFSRI and this have done all kinds of studies, and even a four foot by four foot uh, roof, a hole in the roof. Um, doesn't you know doesn't vent enough to with with today's fuel because it's changed that's the big thing with today's fuels everything burns hotter and faster and in the old days venting the roof did help and if you have an older building that doesn't have a lot of today's contents maybe it does help but now with the amount of fuel even just a stupid couch or uh, you know your tv and everything else in the living room the fuel is so much, as soon as you give it air, you can't vent it fast enough for it not to uh, to go. And of course, well, and this shed being lightweight trusses with lots of dust and whatever burning, I mean, they're going to fail quickly. We don't know if they were exposed, if they had drywall or plywood or hoop shoot. Some people would just like string up some plastic and staple it to the rafters, right? Um, so those trusses are exposed. A little bit of extra weight on there with the firefighters and whatever snow load they had in March, um, it's going to collapse. So, uh, yeah, you know, conduct debriefs in a timely manner as the next the recommendation after an incident regarding deficiencies and make note of corrective measures implemented. So they may have found that they weren't doing after action reviews. I know in the, you know, me blue card, they say, you know, do your after action reports right after the fire while you're all together on the scene. It is so hard to do because so-and-so has got to get back for whatever and, you know, to keep the crews there to do that debrief and, and document it and, and, uh, and pass that information around is, is so tough. Uh, I know. Um, but again, WCB saying, obviously they didn't think there was a process to uh, capture problems and communicate them to the group that they should have learned learned from uh, from previous calls. During the following, that's only nine of them. I didn't have the other three. I couldn't find them anywhere, the other recommendations. During the following months, the city of Yellowknife worked with WCB to comply with the orders. The city uh, of Yellowknife fought the charges. So they, they agreed to comply with the order or the orders. But as far as the charges, they are defending their team. 
which is good. They fought the WCB with both the chief officers pleading not guilty to those charges. After extensive negotiations, the city and workmen's compensation reached what they call an alternative measures agreement, which the territorial court approved in October of 2006, so a year and a half after the call, and the charges were stayed. This complex uh, year-long agreement included placing $300,000 in trust to pay for additional firefighter training for the next 10 years, and that training had to be approved and reported to the WCB. They wanted examination and training for some of the officers. In fact, it said uh, examination and retraining for the deputy chief and then more training in incident scene management and incident command procedures for all officers. So they're obviously detected some issues on the fire ground with exactly what you said is why are they on the roof when there's guys inside the, the and it's a light shed, right? The building construction is the key there. Uh, and uh, they also had to acknowledge the responsibility for the response on 2017. The fire chief uh, resigned subsequently. I didn't gather if the deputy chief resigned. Uh, and a new fire chief who was previously from Swift Current uh, took over in 2008. Um, I think a uh, guy I know actually is the chief there now. He came from Prince Albert and Melfort, and I think he's the chief in Yellowknife now. Um, discussion, uh, like I wrote here on the thing, you know, it's a shed. And it reminds me of Porterville. Again, you know, people didn't know where they were. Um, the recommendations are similar. More training for firefighters, more training for officers, better communication systems with dispatch and to notify people what's going on. What are your guys' thoughts? Um, I think it's a very fire department, all things considered. And we talk in other podcasts about meeting like NFPA 1710 staffing and having the right number of guys on scene. I don't think the fire department could do that with most of their fire department there. And I don't, for people that aren't familiar with Canada or the, the landscape, it's, I think Yellowknife is a very rare uh, city in North America that it's so isolated. Like I did a quick look on Google and I think the next closest fire department is a hundred kilometers away. So the next closest mutual aid is an hour away. So and I'm sure it's a small city that doesn't get a whole lot of structure fires. So a lot of departments' budgets are cut and they're not getting the funding they used to get for things. Training is the easy thing to cut when you cut a budget. You can't cut guys, you cut training time. So it's not like the old days where you got your training just by getting experience. So I'm sure they did the best. They thought they were doing what they should be doing and were doing the best they could and we're probably had the mindset of let's contain this fire to this shed and not let it spread to the big the bigger building and then we have a fire we can't control so yeah and and unless you're a real nerd like us maybe in studying you know building construction and all this other stuff uh you know you get your your one night or one day of building construction in your firefighter training uh, and then it's whatever that. And uh, if you didn't connect the dots between a lightweight truss roof of a shed that was involved, obviously, for a while by the time they got there, um, 
you know, the potential failure of that roof, I guess, didn't go into the equation. You guys uh, seen the video Phoenix did of the firefighters falling into the roof? They they cut a couple of mannequins to a crane and they burnt the building and they waited for the roof to collapse. And there's a video on online about that. It's this fire sounds very similar to me to the super super sofa store in Charleston. That that fire started in a loading dock that wasn't really part of the main building, and it did spread to the main building and then. A, Furniture store and a lumber yard could have, they both have massive fuel loads and that fire got away from them, right? So this was before that. So they didn't have that in mind when they were there. Right. That was 09, right? I think. I think it was 07. 07. Yeah. Yeah. Like I did a quick look at Yellowknife and they said that they have seven guys on shift. So to go to a structure fire with seven guys, if you put, yeah. No matter how you cut it, you're not meeting 1710. Dan says you should have 16 guys there on the first alarm. Right, well, for a house. Even even if Yellowknife has, which they have uh, paid-on-call people, but it says they only have 15 paid-on-call people. So who knows if they can come. And I mean, you're, you're fighting an uphill battle right from the – anything bigger than a dumpster fire, you don't have enough guys for. And my paid-on-call experience says – from seven o'clock till nine o'clock in the morning is the absolute worst time to get responders because they're all on their way to work or dropping off the kids or whatever, and they can't leave to go to a call. Yeah, I know. I mean, the difference between your paid on call experience and this is you were in a bedroom community for a lot of it where people worked out of town. Yeah, but even, even going to their office. So if they have to go, they can, they're not, but even if they're just they're getting their staff going for the day, you know they're yeah. the, the the manager, the supervisor at the wherever. Um, they got they kind of have obligations to their work, and they can't leave right away, especially during that time of day. For sure, yeah. And that's the battle that the whole North American volunteer or paid on call or whatever you want to call it fire department has been battling for ever. Is getting- what's the staff? What's staffing like in in Germany, Dirk? In the oh. smaller, smaller cities. A city, cities are all career uh, departments and they are staffed. There's a standard. So it has to be four guys. Used to be nine guys on the rig. Now it's down to four guys. Um, but they struggle the same, like volunteers and stuff like that. But I was in um, cars rule and they said they only had one full-time station and all the rest, 250,000 people were all part-time on call. Yeah, well, there are still volunteers. There's no part-time or on-call. Um, they're paid on-call. They're all volunteers. So they don't city, get paid. Right? It's a huge city. Uh, anything over nine... Well, everything over 60,000 has to have full-time staff. I'm not sure about the numbers. And mm-hmm. all career departments in Germany do EMS. So there's no you know, just first responders, stuff like that. They all have ambulances. So it's it's you can't really compare. It's like they throw they throw two hundred fifty guys at a fire a structure fire. They don't have a problem with that. Like there's there's mutual aid all over the place. Yeah, it's a small country. Kids. It's a small country with a huge amount of people, right? So right, uh, they they have the same problems. Um, uh, getting volunteers, the same as everywhere, right? Um, but I I, I gotta say back to the yellow knife here. Um, I don't think staffing was the issue there. 
Um, because the fire went out, they they put the fire out. The, the two people died because somebody was on the on the structure that wasn't built for that load, right? And yeah, I, I'm not sure. It, it's it's really like you can you can uh, um, congratulate them for putting out the fire. Uh, unfortunately, two people died. So uh, yeah, I don't think it was staffing. It was really maybe just the lack of training, and they thought this is the opportunity, or they believed that vertical. Works. Or they, or they yeah, didn't, or they didn't know that not. someone. Yeah. Or maybe they yeah. didn't know someone exactly. was so, what, what, they were on the roof. Or... What really strikes me there because it's 2005, but I, I, we we always forget like there wasn't many people with cell phones around, so there's very little pictures. Like we can't even tell how the how the structure looked like. Maybe it looked like a very sturdy building, right? I mean, you know, it's a woodworking shop, so they they had lots of materials. So. And then going up there, sure, why not do a roof ventilation? But um, as you said, communication, I think, is a big problem. Um, staffing in that sense for this fire, I don't think it was. The guys did a well, great job of putting the fire out, right? Staff, um, staffing could have become an issue when the rescue operation started. Right. After the guys fell through the roof, I mean... Yes, we didn't. It doesn't say what the ultimate cause of death was, if it yeah. was fall or running out of air or becoming trapped or whatever. And if there's only I mean, seven guys, <laughs> if, if you say there's ten guys there and two yeah. of them fall through a roof, you yeah, know, it's tough, right? Well, yeah, you lose four guys because the, the two guys that fell down, the two guys that were inside the structure, so that's four out of seven to ten. Yeah, that's not much. And then uh, you got a chief there, right? You got um, operating truck yeah. and like you run out of guys real fast. So really lot to lots to go on. That we have way more information from NIOSH. Uh, WCB is very like Canada in general is very um, secretive when it comes to these investigations. Yeah, if there sure. are any, so that that's kind of it, it's sad because I mean the the sacrifice those guys made. Uh, we have to honor that by learning from it, but. Right. If, even if the officials don't want to really learn and just have these vague recommendations that they always do, it's like, and then they were saying $300,000 over 10 years, it's $30,000 for training is like, I'm not sure if they know how much uh, training costs, right? Even yeah. putting on the course and stuff like that or inviting an instructor, it costs a lot of money. So yeah, it, it's, it's too bad that we don't have more information to, to talk about this. But, but at least that's why we're here to expose what we have and try to get people to think about learning, right? And, you know, if it's a little shed, is it worth going on the roof or not, et cetera? Are there people inside? So, yeah, good good discussion. It Anybody also else? It talks about having the, the training level of some of these firefighters and chief officers. And uh, in my experience, the, the chiefs of these smaller and more distanced from the mainstream fire departments like Yellowknife or up north or small towns, they have certificates coming out the yin-yang. They have all their training. They just don't have the life experience to back it up. Yeah, and, you don't have the calls, right? Yeah. So, and I mean, how, how do you get that? You have to be on a fire department to get it. Yeah. yeah similar like, similar to that Warwick. The, yeah, similar to Warwick, Quebec. I mean, how many barn fires do they get? Once every three, four years, right? Yeah. So 
with a propane tank involved. Very rarely, yeah. right? That was all volunteers. So in theory, if you get three barn fires a year, you could go to all three of them. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yellowknife might get three structure fires a year and you have to be working that day, which there's right. a 25% yeah. chance to start. So there might be three fires and you go to none of them or you're on the ambulance and missed the call or whatever, right? It's uh... or, or you're just a white cloud and you yeah. don't get fires. <laughs> right, yep, yep. All right, well, uh, that's good. We'll, we'll wrap up that uh, podcast on the Yellowknife fire. Um, again, you know, good wor words of wisdom for everyone. Uh, situational awareness, size up. Again, you know, those are things that maybe didn't happen here. Uh, that then led to the risk of the guys falling on top of the, in the shed to inside and, and killing both firefighters inside. Thanks for joining us and stand by for our next episode.